Welcome to Lit Reading. I'm Don McDonald. Looking for more information on the podcast? Visit litreading.com. Now please bear with us as we pay the bills. Our story begins shortly. Welcome to Lit Reading. I'm Don McDonald. Two sisters of disparate ages talk of the elder's unrequited love interest in a mole-infested garden. That's an important part of the story. And how the senior sister ultimately settles for her second best choice. Here's a unique and often forgotten love story, Second Choice, by D.H. Lawrence. Oh, I'm tired, Frances exclaimed petulantly, and in the same instant she dropped down on the turf near the hedge bottom, and stood a moment surprised. Then, accustomed to the vagaries of her beloved Frances, said, Well, and aren't you always likely to be tired after traveling that blessed long way from Liverpool yesterday? And she plumped down beside her sister. Anne was a wise young body of fourteen, very buxom, brimming with common sense. Frances was much older, about twenty-three, and whimsical, spasmodic. She was the beauty and the clever child of the family. She plucked the goosegrass buttons from her dress in a nervous, desperate fashion. Her beautiful profile, looped above with black hair, warm with the dusky and scarlet complexion of a pear, was calm as a mask, her thin brown hand plucked nervously. "'It's not the journey,' she said, objecting to Anne's obtuseness. Anne looked inquiringly at her darling. The young girl, in her self-confident, practical way, proceeded to reckon up this whimsical creature. But suddenly she found herself full in the eyes of Frances, felt two dark, hectic eyes flaring challenge at her, and she shrank away. Frances was peculiar for these great exposed looks, which disconcerted people by their violence and their suddenness. "'What's the matter, poor old duck?' asked Anne, as she folded the slight, willful form of her sister in her arms. Frances laughed shakily, and nestled down for comfort on the budding breasts of the strong girl. "'Oh, I'm only a bit tired,' she murmured, on the point of tears. "'Well, of course you are. What do you expect?' soothed Anne. It was a joke to Frances that Anne should play elder, almost mother to her. But then Anne was in her unvexed teens. Men were like big dogs to her, while Frances, at twenty-three, suffered a good deal. The country was intensely morning still. On the common, everything shone beside its shadow, and the hillside gave off heat in silence. The brown turf seemed in a low state of combustion, and the leaves of the oaks were scorched brown. Among the blackish foliage in the distance shone the small red and orange of the village. The willows in the brook course at the foot of the common suddenly shook with a dazzling effect like diamonds. It was a puff of wind. Anne resumed her normal position. She spread her knees and put in her lap a handful of hazelnuts, whitey green leafy things, whose one cheek was tanned between brown and pink. These she began to crack and eat. Francis, with bowed head, mused bitterly. "'Hey, you, you know Tom Smedley?' began the young girl as she pulled a tight kernel out of its shell. "'I suppose so,' replied Francis sarcastically. 
Well, well, he gave me a wild rabbit what he'd caught to keep with my tame one, and it's living. That's a good thing, said Francis, very detached and ironic. Well, it is. He reckoned to take me to Ollerton Feast, but he never did. Look here, he took a servant from the factory. I saw him. So he ought, said Francis. No, he oughtn't, and I told him so. And I told him I should tell you, and I have done. Click and snap went a nut between her teeth. She sorted out the kernel and chewed complacently. It doesn't make much difference, said Francis. Well, happen it don't, but I was mad with him all the same. Why? Because I was. He's got no right to go with a servant. He's a perfect right, persisted Francis, very just and cold. No, he hasn't, when he said he'd take me. Francis burst into a laugh of amusement and relief. Oh, no, I'd forgot that, she said, adding. And what did he say when you promised to tell me? He laughed and said, He won't fret her fat over that. And she won't, sniffed Francis. There was silence. The common, with its sear, blonde-headed thistles, its heaps of silent bramble, its brown husked gorse in the glare of sunshine, seemed visionary. Across the brook began the immense pattern of agriculture, white checkered of barley stubble, brown squares of wheat, khaki patches of pasture, red stripes of fallow, with the woodland and the tiny village dark-like ornaments, leading away to the distance, right to the hills, where the check pattern grew smaller and smaller, till in the blackish haze of heat, far off, only the tiny white squares of barley stubble showed distinct. Hey. I say, there's a rabbit hole, cried Anne suddenly. Should we watch if one comes out? You won't have to fidget, you know. The two girls sat perfectly still. Frances watched certain objects in her surroundings. They had a peculiar, unfriendly look about them. The weight of greenish elderberries on their purpling stalks. The twinkling of the yellowing crab apples that clustered high up in the hedge against the sky. The exhausted, limp leaves of the primroses lying flat in the hedge-bottom all looked strange to her. Then her eyes caught a movement. A mole was moving silently over the warm red soil, nosing, shuffling hither and thither, flat and dark as a shadow, shifting about, and as suddenly brisk and as silent like a very ghost of joie de vie. Francis started from habit, was about to call on Anne to kill the little pest. But today, her lethargy of unhappiness was too much for her. She watched the little brute paddling, snuffing, touching things to discover them, running in blindness, delighted to ecstasy by the sunlight and the hot, strange things that caressed its belly and its nose. She felt a keen pity for the little creature. "'Hey, our friend, look there, it's a mole!' Anne was on her feet, standing, watching the dark, unconscious beast. Francis frowned with anxiety. It doesn't run off, does it? said the young girl softly. Then she stealthily approached the creature. The mole paddled fumblingly away. In an instant, Anne put her foot upon it, not too heavily. Francis could see the struggling, swimming movement of the little pink hands of the brute, the twisting and twitching of its pointed nose as it wrestled under the sole of the boot. It does wriggle, said the bonny girl, knitting her brows in a frown at the eerie sensation. Then she bent down to take a look at her trap. Francis could now see, beyond the edge of the boot sole, the heaving of the velvet shoulders, the pitiful turning of the sightless face, the frantic rowing of the flat pink hands. "'Kill the thing!' she said, turning away her face. "'Oh, I'm not,' laughed Anne, shrinking. "'You can if you like.' "'I 
don't like, said Francis with quiet intensity. After several dabbling attempts, Anne succeeded in picking up the little animal by the scruff of its neck. It threw its head back, flung its long blind snout from side to side, the mouth open in a peculiar oblong with tiny pinkish teeth at the edge. The blind, frantic mouth gaped and writhed. The body, heavy and clumsy, hung scarcely moving. "'Isn't it a snappy little thing?' observed Anne, twisting to avoid the teeth. "'What are you going to do with it?' asked Francis sharply. "'It's going to be killed. Look at the damage they do. I'll take it home and let Dada or somebody kill it. I'm not going to let it go.' She swaddled the creature clumsily in her pocket handkerchief and sat down beside her sister. There was an interval of silence during which Anne combated the efforts of the mole. "'You've not had much to say about Jimmy this time. Did you see him often in Liverpool?' Anne asked suddenly. "'Once or twice,' replied Francis, giving no sign of how the question troubled her. "'Aren't you sweet on him any more, then?' "'I should think I'm not, seeing that he's engaged.' "'Engaged? Jimmy Barris? Well, of all things, I never thought he'd get engaged.' "'Why not? He's as much right as anybody else,' snapped Francis. Anne was fumbling with the mole. "'Happened so,' she said at length. "'But I never thought Jimmy would, though.' "'Why not?' snapped Francis. "'I don't know. This blessed mole, it'll not keep still. Who's he got engaged to? How should I know? I thought you'd ask him. You've known him long enough.' "'I think he got engaged now that he's a doctor of chemistry.' Francis laughed in spite of herself. "'What's that got to do with it?' she asked. "'I'm sure it's got a lot. He'll want to feel somebody now, so he's got engaged. Hey, stop it! Go in!' But at this juncture the mole almost succeeded in wriggling clear. It wrestled and twisted frantically, waved its pointed blind head, its mouth standing open like a little shaft, its big wrinkled hands spread out. "'Go in with you!' urged Anne, poking the little creature with her forefinger, trying to get it back into the handkerchief. Suddenly the mouth turned like a spark on her finger. Oh, she cried, he's bit me. She dropped him to the floor. Dazed, the blind creature fumbled round. Francis felt like shrieking. She expected him to dart away in a flash like a mouse, and there he remained, groping. She wanted to cry to him to be gone. Anne, in a sudden decision of wrath, caught up her sister's walking cane. With one blow, the mole was dead. Francis was startled and shocked. One moment the little wretch was fussing in the heat. The next it lay like a little bag, inert and black. Not a struggle, scarce a quiver. It is dead, Francis said breathlessly. Anne took her finger from her mouth, looked at the tiny pinpricks, and said, Yes, he is, and I'm glad. They're vicious little nuisances, moles are. With which her wrath vanished. She picked up the dead animal. Hasn't it got beautiful skin? She mused, stroking the fur with her forefinger, then with her cheek. Mind, said Francis sharply. You'll have blood on your skirt. One ruby drop of blood hung on the small snout, ready to fall. Anne shook it off onto some hairballs. Francis suddenly became calm. In a moment, grown up. I suppose they have to be killed, she said. And a certain rather dreary indifference succeeded to her grief. The twinkling crab apples, the glitter of brilliant willows, now seemed to her trifling, scarcely worth the notice. Something had died in her so that things lost their poignancy. She was calm, indifference overlying her quiet sadness. 
Rising, she walked down to the brook course. Here, wait for me, cried Anne, coming tumbling after. Francis stood on the bridge, looking at the red mud trodden into pockets by the feet of cattle. There was not a drain of water left, but everything smelled green, succulent. Why did she care so little for Anne, who was so fond of her, she asked herself. Why did she care so little for anyone? She did not know, but she felt a rather stubborn pride in her isolation and indifference. They entered a field where stooks of barley stood in rows, the straight, blonde tresses of the corn streaming onto the ground. The stubble was bleached by the intense summer, so that the expanse glared white. The next field was sweet and soft, with a second crop of seeds, thin, straggling clover whose little pink knobs rested prettily in the dark green. The scent was faint and sickly. The girls came up in single file, Francis leading. Near the gate, a young man was mowing with the scythe some fodder for the afternoon feed of the cattle. As he saw the girls, he left off working and waited in an aimless kind of way. Frances was dressed in white muslin, and she walked with dignity, detached and forgetful. Her lack of agitation, her simple, unheeding advance made him nervous. She had loved the far-off Jimmy for five years, having had in return his half-measures. This man only affected her slightly. Tom was of medium stature, energetic in build. His smooth, fair-skinned face was burned red, not brown, by the sun, and this ruddiness enhanced his appearance of good humor and easiness. Being a year older than Frances, he would have courted her long ago had she been so inclined. As it was, he had gone his uneventful way amiably, chatting with many a girl, but remaining unattached, free of trouble for the most part. Only he knew he wanted a woman. He hitched his trousers just a trifle self-consciously as the girls approached. Francis was a rare, delicate kind of being, whom he realized with a queer and delicious stimulation in his veins. She gave him a slight sense of suffocation. Somehow, this morning, she affected him more than usual. She was dressed in white. He, however, being matter-of-fact in his mind, did not realize. His feeling had never become conscious, purposive. Francis knew what she was about. Tom was ready to love her as soon as she would show him. Now that she could not have Jimmy, she did not poignantly care. Still, she would have something. If she could not have the best, Jimmy, whom she knew to be something of a snob, she would have the second best, Tom. She advanced rather indifferently. You're back then, said Tom. She marked the touch of uncertainty in his voice. No, she laughed. I'm still in Liverpool. And the undertone of intimacy made him burn. This isn't you, then? he asked. Her heart leapt up in approval. She looked in his eyes, and for a second she was with him. Why, what do you think? she laughed. He lifted his hat from his head with a distracted little gesture. She liked him, his quaint ways, his humor, his ignorance, and his slow masculinity. Here, look here, Tom Smedley, broke in Anne. A mudawarp. Did you find it dead? he asked. No, it bit me, said Anne. Oh, aye, and that got your rag out, did it? No, it didn't, Anne scolded sharply. Such language. Oh, what's up with it? I can't bear you to talk broad, can't you? He glanced at Francis. Isn't it nice, Francis said. She did not care, really. The vulgar speech jarred on her as a rule. Jimmy was a gentleman. But Tom's manner of speech did not matter to her. I like you to talk nicely, she added. Do you? he replied, tilting his hat stirred. 
And generally you do, you know, she smiled. I'll have to have a try, he said, rather tensely gallant. What? she asked brightly. To talk nice to you, he said. Frances colored furiously, bent her head for a moment, then laughed gaily, as if she liked this clumsy hint. Hey now, you mind what you're saying, cried Anne, giving the young man an admonitory pat. You wouldn't have to give yon mole many knocks like that, he teased, relieved to get on safe ground, rubbing his arm. No, indeed, it died in one blow, said Francis, with a flippancy that was hateful to her. You're not so good at knocking em, he said, turning to her. I don't know if, if I'm cross, she said decisively. No, he replied with alert attentiveness. I could, she added harder, if it was necessary. He was slow to feel her difference. And don't you consider it necessary? he asked with misgiving. Well, is it? she said, looking at him steadily, coldly. I reckon it is, he replied, looking away but standing stubborn. She laughed quickly. But it isn't necessary for me, she said with slight contempt. Yes, that's quite true, he answered. She laughed in a shaky fashion. I know it is, she said, and there was an awkward pause. Why, would you like me to kill moles then? she asked tentatively after a while. They do us a lot of damage, he said, standing firm on his own ground, angered. Well, I'll see next time I come across one, she promised defiantly. Their eyes met, and she sank before him, her pride troubled. He felt uneasy and triumphant and baffled, as if fate had gripped him. She smiled as she departed. Well, said Anne, as the sisters went through the wheat stubble, I don't know what you two's been jawing about, I'm sure. Don't you? laughed Francis significantly. No, I don't. But at any rate, Tom Smedley's a good deal better to my thinking than Jimmy, so there, and nicer. Perhaps he is, said Francis coldly. And the next day, after a secret, persistent hunt, she found another mole playing in the heat. She killed it, and in the evening, when Tom came to the gate to smoke his pipe after supper, she took him the dead creature. Here you are, then, she said. Did you catch it? he replied, taking the velvet corpse in his fingers and examining it minutely. This was to hide his trepidation. Did you think I couldn't? she asked, her face very near his. Nay, I didn't know. She laughed in his face, a strange little laugh that caught her breath, all agitation and tears and recklessness of desire. He looked frightened and upset. She put her hand to his arm. Shall you go out with me? he asked in a difficult, troubled tone. She turned her face away with a shaky laugh. The blood came up in him, strong, overmastering. He resisted it, but it drove him down and he was carried away. Seeing the winsome, frail nape of her neck, fierce love came upon him for her and tenderness. We shall have to tell your mother, he said, and stood suffering, resisting his passion for her. Yes, she replied in a dead voice. But there was a thrill of pleasure in this death. Second Choice is one of D. H. Lawrence's most obscure stories, but it's a wonderful example of his poetic prose. Lawrence was vilified in his day and considered by many to be nothing more than a pornographer because of his realistic depiction of human sexuality. His most famous 
and initially infamous book was Lady Chatterley's Lover, published in 1928 in censored form. It wasn't until 1960 that an unabridged version was published and the publisher was tried for violating British obscenity laws. In November of 1960, a jury found them not guilty and the entire book was finally made available for anyone to read. Thanks again for listening to Lit Reading. I'd really appreciate it if you tell others about the podcast, subscribe to it on your favorite service like Apple Podcasts, and if you really like what you hear, please consider leaving a review or at least clicking on those stars at Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Thanks for listening to Lit Reading. I'm Don McDonald.